we were, just to be fair to WeWork, they had a very successful model because they did more than just split up the space. They created a community feeling. They, they, they managed to brand it right. So they did a, couple, a lot of things right, and they got economies of scale. So I'm not saying that that is all an evil company. They did a lot of good things. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. Well, for a year now, real estate investors have wrestled with how work from home and COVID have perhaps changed the way tenants use office space. Now, some argue that everyone will work from home even after COVID's no longer a threat. And others argue the exact opposite, that everyone will return to offices five days a week as soon as they feel safe. Of course, the eventual answer is unlikely to be that unnuanced. Uh, or it, really, we're speaking from a binary point of view. It's either one or it's the other. And there is a lot more to it. And, and that's why we've asked Tal Perry, the head of U.S. real uh, estate uh, on the East Coast and Latin America for union real estate investment, to join us on this podcast. He, he wrote a thoughtful piece for the Summit Journal at the end of 2021 titled Choosing Flexibility that helps clarify how one might want to approach the investing uh, thesis in office. So thank you, Tal, so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's an exciting topic and looking forward to discussing this with you. Absolutely exciting. And, and you made it more so with your article. I hope everyone uh, goes to our website and, and takes a look at it after they listen to this. Um, well, we're recording this in late December of 2021. And as we look to the new year, it might be helpful uh, for everyone to reflect on what office users are actually doing and, and, and how that might impact us, again, once, once the danger is passed. So the uh, danger hasn't passed yet. So I think we're at a time where people are not physically back in the office. And as you said, a lot of people talk about it in binary terms. Some people think everybody goes back to the office like we did before. Some people think the opposite. Um, and I think it's clear, even though you have maybe different um, opinions or different incentives for yourself as a company. For example, we're big office owners, so I ask myself many times, are we too biased in our view because we are uh, office owners? But even we are implementing a three to two model, which means up to two days remote, which is significant for a big company, 55 billion uh, AUM globally, uh, and a big part of that is office. Um, I think that it is hard to know exactly how it plays out, and that's why I was trying in my article to be balanced, but it is clear that flexibility is gonna increase. It is clear that we won't have the same amount of days per week in the office as we had before. There will be less, uh, but it was never five days a week even before the pandemic. If you include uh, vacation days, sick days, travel days, um, the average was actually never five, it was closer to four to begin with. 
And so when people talk about a 3-2 model, we have to kind of figure out what does that really mean in terms of decrease of office demand. So really, you're kind of you're getting rid of some of the drama here in terms of, I mean, the reality is, yes, a lot of people are almost never in the office before COVID. Uh, the folks that were on the road selling, doing deals, that sort of thing. Um, so it is kind of a, we're, we're catching up to a new reality uh, with this. Now, you, you said flexible, and, and you talked about flexibility quite a bit in the article um, what do you mean by that? I mean, it, it's not just that we have to be flexible enough to, to let our office workers, you know, work from home a few days a week. It, it seems that there's a, a lot more flexibility that's going to be asked of us. Yeah. So when there's two different levels of flexibility, the first flexibility is what I described as what the employees want. And I think it's clear after almost two years working from home, they want to have a more balanced lifestyle. Uh, they may not want to commute five times a week to a city to a city center that's two hours away from where they live. Um, so there's that demand, but with that demand and the uncertainty around what will actually the, 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 the new world look like on average, right? There'll be companies on both spectrums. So that flexibility also puts employers or tenants at a situation where they ask themselves, how much office space do I really need in the future? Because they don't know it. And now we're not even back fully in the office. It was a dance. We had a couple of days in the office, a couple of months. The new variant comes up. So we're really not. And as a long-term investor, we're really more interested, and that's what I focused on my article, in the future at a time where people can forget about the health risk, right? And what are things going to look like? Hopefully that's going to be after this winter. But even if it gets extended, we're more interested in the long-term view. And that flexibility that I described on the work from home or the hybrid model and how that plays out, then translates into demand for office space and not only the full amount of how much office space they want, but how they want to structure their leases. And some don't want to sign 10-year leases. Some do. Some landlords will, as I described, stick to a 10-year lease or more. And the very, very new buildings are getting it. We have those very big buildings and sometimes the one Vanderbilt or some of those stronger assets that I mentioned in my article are able to say, if you want to be here, you have to play by my rules. But there are also some smaller assets or some older assets that have vacancies. And all of a sudden, the situation looks different. It's almost like uh, the have and have nots. And the have nots have, even earlier than the pandemic, started to say, well, I would rather have a co-working space in there. I'd rather have a risky riskier tenant than a triple A rated entity in there, that's better than vacancy. But all of a sudden, and I described this in the article, this shifted to um, these co-working providers became competitors and they're taking away a piece of the cake and all of a sudden the cake is already smaller because we don't know how much office demand will decrease by. And so now landlords are starting to say, well, then we're going to create maybe our own flex providers so that we can take that additional profit and not someone else. And especially when you think about these traditional leases from co-working providers, um, you had the perception that it's risk-free, not risk-free, but you have the perception that it's a long-term lease that gives you secure cash flow. But it is only secure until, until the difficult economic downturn happens, or in this case, a pandemic that induced an economic downturn that's very specific. And all this model is based on density. And right now, density is exactly what we cannot do. 
right? Especially in the pandemic. And so the model from WeWork and others uh, was, was, was genius and was working. And part of this was affordability because you chop big places up into small. And then all of a sudden, instead of 80, you can get up to $300 a square foot in Manhattan. And that's, that's very lucrative if it works. And it basically um, is almost like hotel, hotelizing uh, and having uh, the, the, the office world. And that was, um, th th that was phenomenal until a very specific situation came, a pandemic, we're not allowed to be so close to each other. And, and, and so, but, so there's a little bit of a dip, and you see that in the data that I point out, that some of those co-working tenants gave space back. So you had a long-term lease, you thought you're in a good position all of a sudden in the bad time, and you don't have anything, and they even leave you behind with sometimes not even a guarantee. I, I, just with no long-term lease then, it, 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 it not being a real thing, it being a thing that, a fake thing where we thought we had something that we didn't actually have in terms of a security, what are people doing now then? So they're, they're considering a couple of different options. One thing is that the co-working providers are realizing that for themselves, it's also a big risk to have all these lease obligations. And if you remember that WeWork itself had a problem IPOing because of those issues and other issues as well. But so the, 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 it's not good for, for those companies to have these long-term and for the landlords, uh, it's not the perceived security that we wanted to have. And so but we gave away a portion of the profit for perceived, uh, for perceived security. And what people are doing now, they're saying, well, then maybe I have to run it. Maybe I can run it better. Maybe I can uh, learn. Maybe I can use bigger firms as service providers that are running it for me better. But I'm participating in the upside. So I'll take a management agreement. I'll accept that this is an operating business that has risk. But I would rather, in a, let's say, <clears throat> if you look at it over a 10-year time frame, and you expect I'm just making it up in 10 years to get one economic crisis that's meaningful, I would rather have eight years of an elevated, uh, an elevated income that offsets my one year of economic downturn than to pretend that I have a fixed lease and have a lower income over eight years and then have nothing in year eight or nine. So I think that's the idea of let me participate in the upside. I know the risk is there. I cannot pretend just by having a lease that it's not there. And, and by that, if I'm big enough, I can self-run it. If I'm not big enough, I can hire other people. Or as we have seen over the, the corporations between even companies like Numor buying up Notel or CBRE partnering up with, with other big co-working providers. So they, they, these JVs are being formed, and all of this suggests that flexibility and that demand for it will continue to be there. And once the health crisis subsides, uh, there will be more of this. And one additional aspect that was not mentioned in the article is in terms of geography, where is that flexibility going to go to? And where is potentially a co-working provider or a flex even more interesting. So I can tell you, I am right now sitting in a co-working space that's close to my home in Great Neck, Long Island. Usually I commute over an hour each way. And since the pandemic, I have two little kids at home and I didn't want uh, to have that distraction. So I rented a second space, which is not our main headquarters in Manhattan. Um, and so there is a business model, some people call it hub and spoke, it doesn't necessarily have to be a separate lease, but there is a demand for that. Even when you say remote work two times a week, 
that doesn't mean they're all going to be at home. There will be a portion of people like me and others that say, I want a quiet space where I can focus. And I would go to an office, not the main office in the city center, even on the two days of remote work. And so the aggregated demand for office space, interestingly enough, uh, have an offsetting effect on, on those two days as well. And if I may add one thing that's interesting in terms of when the big question for office owners is what the impact does that have for office demand if, if you don't go to the office twice a week. When we think about it, if you have a company and you want still to get some level of cooperation and, and, and interaction of your teams, you almost have to tell them which of the three days are the in-person days because otherwise they're going to come whenever they come and only half your team or less of half your team is there. So to make it simple, if we argue that Monday and Friday are the remote work days, um, then from Tuesday to Thursday you have very similar occupancy than you had, uh, than you had before the pandemic or before a hybrid work model. And you cannot reduce your office space by the average occupancy over the week. You can only reduce it by your peak occupancy. And so that's why I personally think that the negative impact on office demand is not going to be as severe as some people have feared earlier in the, because you cannot take this full efficiency out of, uh, out of the system. So we're probably going to have more empty space during a normal week, even if it's fully leased, um, that occupying will be less. Yeah, I mean, I'm always joking when I speak on a panel, but look at your email traffic at Friday after 1 p.m and you'll just know what's going to happen in offices. But these offices are empty Saturday and Sundays as well, right? And we accepted that, but we're paying for the full month, the rate that just builds that in. Um, so, and I'm not saying that people are not going to work on Monday and Friday. People have been very productive. Some companies have been more productive. So the, the, the jury is still out there. It's hard to, to argue for every business line can be different. Some are more, some are less productive uh, if there's remote work. And I think this approach of hybrid work is trying to, is trying to get the best of both worlds. Um, that you can still have some flexibility, have a life balance, maybe pick up your kids from school, go back and continue to work, uh, but also um, be productive, have the cooperation and, the, and all the good things that happen when people are in a small room and actually see each other, uh, not just over Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to me that we're going to have to follow this for a while. We don't know yet. We're not there. We're not in that normal time. But all of this has been happening over the last 15, 20 years. I mean, the advent of the laptop meant that the weekends suddenly offices were empty when they really weren't empty. A lot of professional services firms, you see people in the office on a Saturday or on a Sunday, maybe not at the same density, but you saw a lot of folks, maybe the law firms, it was the same density. They, they worked seven days a week. But, um, so the, the, the space itself uh, is changing, and I wonder if that's a clue as well in terms of what we can expect going forward. And you talked a little bit about that uh, in terms of co-working space. Uh, you know, I remember co-working space being something that it was, you know, a few years ago was a bunch of people in their pajamas in this, you know, this hive of work, uh, you know, doing coding and things like that. But now it seems to be something that's it's much more for folks that perhaps are in the same lines of work that you and I are in. Oh, yeah. So basically, the beginning of the evolution was co-working more freelancers that didn't want to work out of a Starbucks, right? Uh, over time, what 
WeWork calls enterprise, and there are different names for the bigger companies. They start with 50, sometimes up to 500 people. And again, it goes back to flexibility. There are some buildings that we reviewed that had um, a meaningful amount, almost a third of the building is Amazon uh, under a WeWork lease, uh, basically Amazon taking enterprise space for three years. And from a big landlord, they wouldn't get the three years. And that's what I'm arguing in the article is, well, WeWork is leasing from a strong landlord like us, taking a 15-year lease that we don't know what risk is behind it, selling it to someone for three years at a much elevated rate. I'm just making it up. Call it 1.5 just for the sake of argument. Why should we not take as a landlord a piece of that 1.5 and feel comfortable getting instead of 100 $150 rents for three years um, instead of giving that portion to someone else? Um, but the problem is, as I described in the article, is that we're still driven by valuations and appraisals. And I think that the appraisal industry has to catch up. And if you get 150, you don't need to get the same cap rate on the 150 if 100 is market, but you should get something closer to, uh, to the 150 than, than to the 100 um, if, if you really are generating it and acknowledging that risk. But these long-term trends and the desire, obviously, um, we know in certain markets, the expenses are really extreme in terms of tenant improvements, vacancies. So these risks are also serious, but we'll have to see how the industry develops. Um, the best, yeah. Um, and if I may go back to your, to your point, this has been going on for 15 years. This has been going on for a while. That is very true. And as in many industries and in many aspects, uh, the pandemic has changed something. They either just speed it up, but in this case, it's more than just speeding up because it was a paradigm shift. Before that, you would have never had anybody take this biggest um, mass um, test of let's everybody just work from home now for two months or a year or two. This just happened because we had no choice. The level field was plain. Everybody had to be home. So you weren't the lazy guy that wants to take that some people used to say, right? You're not productive if I'm not in the office. That was the perception before. And there has been a change, a paradigm change, that I personally think companies that believe that whoever is not in the office and sitting is not productive are going to lose talent. I think they have to acknowledge that. They have to find a balance because obviously when you're paying someone a decent salary, you also want to get something in return, and that's fine. Nobody's arguing against that. But the flexibility and a happy employee that is, has a more better life balance um, and structures their day around it is, 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 could be even more productive for you. So um, I think that's an interesting topic to see how it plays out because in conversations, even in our AFIRE uh, meetings, I have heard some people say, okay, so I have a three-day week in the office, but then I, I worry that my colleagues may travel on those days, so they're not going to be in the office the whole week. And my response would be, that means you're not really genuine about wanting to give them flexibility, because it's not about a strict three to two, it's about allowing a little bit more trust and see how it works, and if it works well, you, you continue with that trust. And, and you'll have a more productive person working. And, and that's hard, building trust. It's one of those things that they don't necessarily uh, teach you in business school. But um, I think we are learning, um, everyone. It, I think it's fascinating as well that what you're seeing is that money that's been left on the table because we've been selling wholesale. 
uh, to the likes of WeWork, who have then been turning around and selling retail. And there's a lot of margin that we haven't seen or recognized. So I, I think that's, I agree with you. That's something to watch over the next couple of years as the appraisers, as others start to understand what that actually is. And we get it out of the world of, oh, that's WeWork. Just to be clear, WeWork, just to be fair to WeWork, they had a very successful model because they did more than just split up the space. They created a community feeling, they, they, they managed to brand it, right? So they did a, couple, a lot of things, right? And they got economies of scale. So I'm not saying that that is all an evil company. They did a lot of good things and they will continue to stick around uh, and have now under new management, like a more mature leadership. Um, but they've, they've, they've done a lot of things right. Um, and, and, and they added value. So that's why some even bigger brokerage firms are now uh, or even Saks Fifth Avenue are, are building partnerships with them. So they, from the technology all the way to, to, to branding, they're they adding value. So it's not that they don't deserve any of that portion of the additional uh, rent, but they don't deserve 100% of that additional rent. You're absolutely right. Uh, and, and, and well put, really well put. Well, given all these trends that, that uh, you're tracking, and again, I'd encourage everyone to take a look uh, at Tal's article, it's, it's, it's worth reading, uh, is um, what should investors do? So in my article, I described five things. One, we started to talk about were the traditional leases with co-working providers, that was one option. Uh, partially related to that are management agreement with co-working companies that could be either um, with with, with partners, um, a management agreement, JV agreement. Um, and then there are even more simple things like spec suites, which has been around for a long time, but got even more uh, interest in recent, in recent times. So you pre-build a space yourself um, and you just accept for a small portion of your building to have shorter lease terms at higher rates for that, uh, for, for that tenant that does want a three or five year lease. And that's mostly smaller companies that you would expect them to, to want that. And when you pre-build, they can also move in faster. So a lot of that advantages that the co-working providers have, you're basically taking away and you're trying to capture that. It doesn't even have to be a full co-working concept. It could be just a three-year lease with a pre-build or they're called a spec suite. Um, and then, um, and then the, the other point, and we're, we're lucky or smart or both, um, that... We are always focusing on newer, better buildings in good locations with strong credit tenants. And there has been clear data that having high quality buildings uh, with these amenities that I described, the locational aspects that I described, um, that they have fared better in all economic downturns than the not so good buildings. Uh, but they even have both managed to get longer lease terms managed to get higher rents in relative terms to, to class B or older assets. Um, and so there's a clear business model that the flight to quality is not just a term that investors use, it really is happening. And, and, and it's, it's a natural thing. If you have a class B office building and your rent has depleted, but you have a time where also the class A may have adjusted in a certain way, you may especially when you're considering even to take maybe a different, even a lower uh, square foot, may just say, hey, that's a good time for me now to lock in a good rate and a better building. Let me do that because these things are going to even continue to increase even further. And so we have seen very high collection rates in our top buildings. 
um, and we have also seen a performance that's much better than the average market. We've been talking with Tal Perry. He's the head of U.S. real estate uh, on the East Coast in Latin America for Union Real Estate Investment. And the article that he wrote for us was called Choosing Flexibility. I'd encourage everyone to read it. So thank you so much, Tal, for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.